Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. All right, so I do have to apologize to you. Um, so we are starting our Revelation study that I'm calling the Letter from Patmos. Because every time we talk about a Revelation study and you look at any kind of graphics and, and how other churches might have promoted this, it always looks like everything's going to hell in a handbasket, right? Everything's blood red and dark. There's demons everywhere. And it's like, it's kind of kind of morbid, kind of dark for a book of hope. And so we're calling it a letter from Patmos. And we made these study guides uh, and printed them up. But that dirty, rotten first service took all of them, had no care or concern for you guys, right? And so we printed 100, and I really was thinking, oh, yeah, I don't know if really that many people would want one. Let's just print 100 and see. I was grossly undervaluing that, and so my apologies to that. We already have some in the works that are getting printed. They should be here this week, and we are already going to order even a third round of those. And so these will be available to you uh, next week if you want one. It is digital, so if you go to our website, ccloto.org, on the front page of the website, you're looking for that graphic, and you just click on it. So it is digital there just to get you by for a week if you want a paper one. Um, and so those will be available to you. And so we have already broke down the whole book of Revelation to uh, the passage that we'll be preaching and title. And we wanted to put this resource together because with the book of Revelation, uh, there, there's a lot there. And a lot of people are pretty excited. We've been hearing a little bit of buzz of excited to walk through this book. I've never been a part of a church or I've never done a study through this. And because of that, we wanted to add a lot of resources to it. So every passage has uh, like a key verse of the passage that we'll be preaching on. It has a passage summary. So uh, the passage that we're preaching on a Sunday morning, we just summarize it in just two or three sentences. Or if you're like me and you just want like the bullet point, there's a passage outline, as well as all the study questions that we'll use for life group are already done and in that resource. So if you want to study ahead so you can get a really good grade on the final at the end of semester, you know, uh, some of you are like me where you uh, cram the, as you're driving to school, you can do that as well. There really isn't a final, but all of that is available in that resource. Again, we'll have uh, in-person hand paper copies next week, but it is digital online if you want that. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation. It is the last book of the Bible, so it's kind of easier to start at the end and work your way forward. If you get to any other book, just uh, you've gone too far. And so go to Revelation chapter 1. Um, and, and to give everybody uh, that's, that clear understanding so nobody corrects you if you're in a theological argument and you say revelations, and, and people are so uh, kind with their grammar correction, and, oh, it's called revelation, not revelations. And it's like, and I kick you in the teeth. So it's revelation. Go ahead and correct everybody so nobody can do that to you and for you because we know when our grammar is corrected, that's just a blessing from the Lord right there, you know. We always appreciate that. And there's a couple things that I want to go over before we jump into our study and what I'm calling the rules of the road for revelation, right? Because, again, there's a lot of different ways that you can interpret and approach this, right? And so we need rules of the road. I have two teenagers. One's driving. One has their permit. Moment of silence of prayer. 
And we're back. Okay. And so teaching them to drive, hey, there's rules of the road that you need to abide by because that's going to be for your safety and it's going to make sure that I trained you up in an adequate way to drive, unlike everybody else on the road that didn't have a loving father to teach them, especially a blinker, right? So there's rules of the road with Revelation so that, hey, there, there needs to be guardrails because there's nothing more that Satan would love to do uh, than to take us, knowing us Christians love to argue about deep theological things while the whole world around us, not even knowing the conversation, is still walking in brokenness. And he's laughing and licking his chops because we as Christians just want to fight it out instead of continuing to be the church in the world around us. So we have some rules of the road that I'm going to, as the pastor, not ask but just kind of declare that this is how we will approach the book of Revelation. And if you step outside of these bounds, we absolutely will sit down and talk about what God has called us to do. Because a lot of times we want to fight our theological points, and that's not what we are called to do. So rule number one of the rules of the road for Revelation, number one is Christ-centered. If we study Revelation as of any other book of the Bible and we are not keeping Christ centered on it, we are not studying the book appropriate. A lot of times we look at the book of Revelation and like, okay, what's the mark of the beast, pastor? Who's the antichrist? Who's the ten horns and the big horn, the little horn, the seven spirits, the seven, all this? And we're trying to find all this in the world around us. And you know who we're not looking to when we have that kind of approach? Christ. And you know who is loving that? Our enemy. And when we want to disagree about how the order of events will happen and go down and what means what, and we fight about those and we get mad and, and we break fellowship with some people because of it, guess who is not honored and glorified in that? The Lord. And so I am going to ask for, not melody, we don't need to be note for note, but I will ask for harmony. I will ask for harmony. So if you're in life groups or maybe sitting with somebody that you don't necessarily agree with, could be your spouse. Have patience and grace and understanding. God gave you two ears and one mouth. Understand the ratio. So if somebody maybe disagrees with you or, or you're hearing them talk and it's like, I don't know if I believe that, maybe just listen and hear their point. Understand where they came from. But first and foremost, we will be Christ-centered in our study of Revelation because it is the revelation of Jesus not of Antichrist, not of end times. It is a revelation of Jesus himself. And so we are going to be Christ-centered in our approach to the revelation. And then number two, we're going to let the word of God lead and guide us. And I know we're in church and you're, oh, well, yes, pastor, we would love that. Here's what I'm going to ask. You lay down your theological bends and camps that you were trained up and raised up in, or maybe previous churches that you went to. Here's the other hard one. I'm going to ask that you lay down your favorite online pastor. Ooh, that one hurt, didn't it? Let's lay those down and let the word of God lead and guide us. Am I perfect? Absolutely not, no matter what my wife tells you, okay? I'll correct her right now. Right? I'm not perfect. I don't have a perfect understanding of this. But a lot of times what will happen is, and we read about this even last week talking about Judas, we want to surround ourselves with people that agree with us. And we want to use them and say, oh, well, I listen to this person. This is how they interpret it. What's the word say? We as believers have, have the author within us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. 
who indwells us, have the author who wrote this book through John. And so we are going to lean on dependence of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide our walk. And so we're going to have to lay down some theological bends and preconceived ideas. Because a lot of times we'll hear a lot of teaching on that. And then when we go walking through the verses, we'll find, hold on, where was that? Hold on, I can't even find that. And that's going to set a really high bar of expectation that sometimes we might end up getting disappointed. And so we are going to lay those down. We're going to have the word of God to lead and guide us. And number three, rule of the road, we're going to be consistent in our interpretation, right? So one of my favorite verses when people ask me about my philosophy of ministry about preaching. Hey, your style of preaching, like, help me understand. What, what, what's at the core of that? And Nehemiah 8.8 8 is one of my favorite verses. In the Old Testament, Ezra had the book of the law. He read it and explained its meaning. That's what we're going to do. And even in that verse there in Nehemiah, it almost has the connotation that they were walking just paragraph by paragraph through the book of the law and reading it. And they, Because, again, the goal wasn't to finish. The goal wasn't to defend their theological camp or point of view. The goal was that the people would understand it and live it out. And the same for us in Revelation. Because all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Even the book of Revelation is profitable for the training and righteousness. For what? That the man of God, the women of God would be adequate and equipped for every good work. So we're studying Revelation as a training of righteousness for the good works that God has prepared for us. That we would walk in them. Right? That is the goal. So we're going to Christ-centered, we're going to let the word lead, and we're going to be consistent in our interpretation, and we'll break that down a little bit. Now, I kind of wanted to do a small overview before we jump into it, because again, there's multiple different ways you can approach this, and you're wondering, well, how do you even get there? Like, what are those roads that lead people to different interpretations of what Revelation means? And so a couple things. Um, there we go. Let it, ooh, yeah, we're connected. Very good. So again, we will be Christ-centered. And so the breakdown of Revelation, when you just walk through even just the chapter divisions, you know, chapters 1 to 3, we're talking about Jesus Christ as the exalted priest. 4 and 5, we're talking about him in heaven as that glorified Lamb of God. A bulk of the book, we're going to talk about Jesus as this righteous judge of all the earth. Verse 19, he is this conquering king that returns to the earth. And at the end of the book, Christ is our heavenly bridegroom. See, if I were to come and say, hey, church, I'm thinking about preaching about Jesus, and I want to talk about how he's our high priest, how he's this lamb of God, this righteous judge, this conquering king, this bridegroom, we would all say yes and amen, pastor. And we say, okay, I'm going to walk through Revelation. Oh, because then again, we always think Revelation is about end times, the Antichrist, all these different things that we need to try to find what is happening in our world. No, no, Revelation has always been about Jesus. And so we will be Christ-centered in our approach, and even the breakdown leads us that way. So we're not forcing the Word to do that. We are realigning ourselves to the Word of God, not trying to make the Word of God fit what we want it to say. And the chapter topics of Revelation, I think this is key to understand as we're walking through it because it can get kind of confusing. Uh, what happens is he's jumping, John, he'll be in heaven for one scene, then he jumps back to earth and he'll back to heaven and back to earth. And even the different ages in which uh, God is orchestrating the fullness of these events through human history. And so in heaven, we're going to be in chapter one during this church age. This is that dispensation of grace that we are in. And then we're going to jump to earth and there's the 
seven churches of Asia, and we'll walk through that. But a bulk of the letter, which we see, is going to be in the tribulation, that seven-year period after the rapture and before the second coming of Jesus. We're going to see not only what's happening on earth, where a lot of focus gets put, but we're also going to see what God is preparing in heaven as well. And then we have the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of the Lord, what's going to look like in heaven and on earth. And then at the very end, you know, think of all of Scripture. We're going back to Genesis with that garden-like city, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, that eternal state. And so that kind of helps us understand that we're going to be jumping around a lot. And if we mix up our locations, it could lead us a little bit astray. And lastly, one of the things that we talk about is writing genres, right? Probably thinking, just get into the book, Pastor. What is? There's a lot of pre-work that we need to look at. And the different types of writing for Scripture means something. That's why you know if you read the Psalms, those are, that's poetry. Or Song of Solomon. Read that on the midnight. Yeah, that'll get you fired up, right? And so th that is poetry, and, and you need to know that it's poetry so that you interpret it appropriately. You know, like the Gospels, they were written as Roman biographies. And so how we read the Gospels, we read different than maybe even the letters to the churches. Those are epistles. Those are letters. And so knowing the genre of writing really does help us and how do we interpret it correctly and how do we walk in it so that uh, what the key question is, what is the author's original intent? You know, so when we're sitting in life group, it's not the question of, well, this is what this passage means to me, and this is how I interpret it. No, we have the same interpretation. What did the original author mean? Now, it might apply to us differently, but everybody has the same original intent because it is the same one author. And so the thing with Revelation is there's actually three genres that it is written in. And so we, like a clown in the circus, are going to have to juggle these at different times and have to know which one is which so that, again, we walk appropriately through the Word of God. So first off, it's prophetic. And we'll read about this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So it's prophetic. And then it's an epistle. It's a letter, just like we would study the letter to the Ephesians or Galatians or Philippians. It's a letter that we are going to study. And so John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So John is speaking directly to certain churches that were uh, working and operating and alive in that time. And so we're going to approach it just like we would any other letter. But it's also apocalyptic, right? And all that is is the Greek word for revelation. It's a revelation. It's an apocalyptic of Jesus. Christ. And apocalyptic literature was very popular in the Old Testament, even in that intertestamental time between the New and the Old Testament. So some of the apocrypha, very apocalyptic, which means there's a lot of symbolism. And that's okay, because our faith is rooted in a lot of good symbolism, right? So uh, every month we take communion. We take a little cracker, we take a little bit of juice, and we take that, and it's symbolism to something real. So that's the key about symbolism is what is the real thing that it is rooted in, the body and the blood of Jesus. If you've been baptized, that's a symbolism. It didn't save you. It's just water that we pumped right out of the lake. We didn't even filter it because we knew the sinners getting in it just going to make it dirtier, right? And so that's a symbolism. It doesn't save you. It doesn't do anything special. It's a symbol of being dead to yourself, alive in Christ. 
And so we, just like Christ rose from the dead, we raise you out of the water. That's symbolism. So the same thing within, as we read Revelation, there's going to be some symbolic things. And they loved this kind of apocalyptic literature because uh, it, it makes it a little bit more interesting to read. We could say, and you'll, you'll see it in Revelation, like, oh, there's one guy rebelling against people and the people are following after him. Or they're going to say things like, and the people are drunk with wine on the blood of the harlot. And be like, dang, like, who's the harlot? Like, no, no, no. <laughs> calm down out there, right? And so it's going to be symbolic, and it's, going to, it's a little bit more word picture that's going to drive some of these points home. But here's, here's the air that happens with Revelation, ready? Because if we look at it as prophetic, we're called a futurist view of Revelation. If you look at it as just an epistle, meaning it's all past tense, that's where you're going to get a preterist view, meaning this is all complete. There's nothing for us today in the book. And then apocalyptic is all the symbolic. The air in interpreting it is when we only hold the one and negate the other two. Again, we have to juggle. All three are key because all three are the genre in which it is written. A lot of times where we start dividing and, and breaking off where, well, they read it way differently than I do. And how do we get to these different interpretations? It's the road that we are taking. And so instead of just taking one and following into air, we're going to take all three and walk appropriately how John wrote it. So we're going to be consistent. We're going to take the normal, grammatical, literal, hermeneutic, understanding, interpretation of Scripture. Now, uh, you probably don't have it because first service stole them all, but in the beginning of our letter to Patmos, there's a, a small synopsis at the very beginning, and I just want to read the last paragraph for you because here's another key thing that we need to understand about the book of Revelation. Though it is filled with signs, and we will talk about that, the book of Revelation is accessible to those who have an understanding of the first 65 books of the Bible, right? And especially an understanding of the first 39, meaning the Old Testament. The book of Revelation, it is rooted in the Old Testament. So in a sense, we're almost getting ready to start an Old Testament Bible study through the book of Revelation. There's over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. Almost 70% make some reference to the Old Testament. And that's, uh, that's that passage in Roots of Revelation. Um, even another commentator, I loved how he said this, nearly 300 references in the Old Testament. And it means we must anchor our interpretation to what God has already revealed. We have to anchor ourselves in the rest of it. And we're going to allow that. So not just context of a few passages, but even the whole book, we're going to keep it in the context of God's full story through the landscape of human history starting clear back in Genesis. This is one story that God is bringing about, and Revelation is just the culmination of it. But when we try to take it and abort it away from the first 65 books, yeah, you're going to find yourself in some weird areas of interpretation. And so the, the big fancy term that we're going to do here, so if you need the $5 word, expositional constancy, meaning we're going to be consistent and constant in our exposition of Scripture. So without further ado, if you have your Bible, Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. And so blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. 
So if you need a blessing, just start reading Revelation out loud. You will be blessed by that. And blessed are those who hear it. So if you hear somebody reading Revelation, go stand next to them. You will be blessed because of it. Maybe not because of their voice, but what they are reading. And who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Oh, what does that word mean? So John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you. And peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us. Like, don't lose sight, Jesus, to him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. And behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on accounts of him, even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So let's just pause right there. I think there's enough for us to chew on there. So this is the revelation of Jesus. This is the apocalypsis of Jesus. That word revelation meaning it's a revealing. It's an unveiling. Like all of us on a Christmas morning, we come running down the stairs. Even if you don't have stairs, you come running down the stairs. You look under the tree, and there's that present. Unless you had horrible parents. No, I'm teasing. Kids like, we didn't buy our kids Christmas this year. We're Jewish. Sorry. No. And so at your birthday, is that better? So it's like a present, and you are unwrapping this gift that is given unto you. You are revealing and unveiling this gift. That's the same language that we need to approach the book of Revelation, that this is a gift given unto us that we get to unveil that is being revealed to us. It's almost like God is pulling back the curtain and saying, I want you to have a deeper understanding. Not of end times. It's not the revelation of end times. It's not the revelation of the Antichrist. It's not the revelation of the mark of the beast. It's not the revelation of pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, all-mill, post-mill, pre-mill. Some of you are like, what is he saying? Is he in tongues right now? Do we need an interpretation? It's the revelation of Jesus. And we, as good Bible students and followers of Jesus, we pray and we say things like, Lord, we want a deeper understanding of who you are. And so if we have that heart, but we neglect the book of Revelation, then, then we're walking over to the curtain, closing it, and saying, I really don't want much of you. Because a lot of times we have the misfocus that this is only about end times. And you hear people, they'll say things like, you know, is it mid-trib, post-trib, pre-trib? And we'll talk about what all those words mean. And we hear people say, well, I'm a pan-tribber meaning it's all just going to pan out, and it doesn't matter because you're reading Revelation wrong because Revelation isn't about end times, and, and you neglect to study that because you just know that, oh, it'll all pan out, and God will do what he wants to do. No, it's a revelation of Jesus, just like in any good relationship. Like, I'm married. I know more about my wife now than I did the day I was married. But if, let's say, three months into the marriage and, and we're having this really good, deep conversation on the couch, and what if I just got up and said, you know what, I'm just going to close the curtain. I really don't want to mo know more about you. Like, I'm good with the superficial level of understanding of you. 
My wife would be so blessed by that, wouldn't she? Wouldn't your wife just love that? Like, you really? You don't want to press in and understand the depths of my heart? No, the game's on, honey. Right? No, we don't do that. We don't walk back over and just close the curtain. Guys, let's be honest. If anything, we're trying to pull the curtain back. Amen? Right? Uh, some of you got under, some of you got it. Okay. We'll just keep moving. <laughs> I was like, how can I connect with them to understand this? Okay, guys, here we go. So this is a revealing and an unveiling of Jesus. And look at the kind of the five-fold way that God did this. God gives it to Jesus. Jesus gives it to his angel, which all through Revelation, we're going to see John talking either to Jesus, to this angel, to the Father, to some elders. There's going to be different ways these, this revelation is going to be handed out. But you have God to Jesus, the Father, God the Father, to God the Son, Jesus, to this angel. He's going to give it to John, and then John gives it to us. Very ordered, not chaotic, not spontaneous, but God is a God of order, not of chaos. And he wants to make it known. He made it known by sending his angel. Some of your Bibles might say that he signed it, right? Remember when you used to get in trouble, or is this just me, at school, and your teacher would send you home one of those notes and be like, now I want your parents to sign it and bring it back tomorrow. Oh yeah, she'll sign it. (laughs) Her name will be on this paper. Don't you worry, teacher. And you sign it because you wanted to verify that your parents saw that. And I was really good at signing my mom's signature, right? It's like she taught me how to draw, and I use those artistic liberties for good. And so in a sense, God signs this letter. He's like, I want you to understand and know the authority on this. And there's going to be signs within it, and it fits with John. Because if you go back to his gospel and you read the gospel of John, he's going to pick out very specific signs of who Jesus is and what he's done to show that he's the master over time. He's the master over quality. He's the master over quantity. There's these specific things that John wanted us to know. He signed his gospel in the same way. He made it known. He signed it sent his angel to John, and he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. He put those on the same level. That you, and a lot of times we walk into the word, you'll hear people say, well, I don't know if I believe all of the word, but I believe the Bible contains the word of God. What they're doing is trying to chisel away at the foundation of the word of God. And so John approaches, and he understands what he is witnessing, what he is hearing, what he is told to write down, that like live action, this is the word of God as I'm receiving this testimony of Jesus. And then we have that blessing. There's actually seven Beatitudes all through the book of Revelation, and there is the first one. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are you who listen to it. And blessed are we as we keep it, as it trains us in righteousness for every good work that God has for us. And then in verse 4, I love this because it walks into the Trinity, a really great understanding of God in three persons. So John to the seven churches that are in Asia, and we'll talk about who those seven are next week, right? But he says, grace to you and peace from him. I think this is God the Father, who is, who was, and is to come. If you go back to Exodus uh, chapter 3, verse like 15 or 16, you find Moses talking to a burning bush, right? And I believe this is pre-incarnate Christ speaking to Moses from that burning bush. And he's like, hey, I need you to go to Egypt. You got to redeem my people out. You're going to lead them out. And what's Moses say? Uh, I I stutter. I can't talk well. Like, you got to find somebody else. And he's like, no, you're my man. You're the man for the job. He's like, well, when I show up, who am I even going to tell them has sent me? And what's God say? I am sent you. I am who I am. 
that in the Old Testament, every time you see the capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, God's proper name. That's actually why I have that tattoo, right? So when I shake somebody's hand and they see those letters, they're like, oh, what's that mean? And I get to tell them about God's proper name and who he is. And it's happened a couple times. Even, even the day that I got it, it was wrapped up, and one lady's like, oh, did you give blood? And I was like, no, but Jesus did. In the airport, Orlando, Florida, wondering, but that's God's proper name, Yahweh. And when you, when you try to uh, give a full understanding of what that Yahweh name means, it's him who is, who was, and is to come. I am who I am. And so he's showing us that this, this revelation from God, this is from Yahweh, the fullness of it, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. There's not seven different spirits. I think this is the uh, a reference to the Holy Spirit, the fullness from Isaiah 11, chapter, or, yeah, chapter 11, verse 2. When the same verse is used when it says that the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, the fullness of the Holy Spirit that comes upon Jesus, they reference this same verse in Isaiah. And so they're showing us that the the full seven characteristics of the fullness of the Holy Spirit is here. So we have God the Father, we have God the Holy Spirit, and now from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And our study in Colossians shows us that Jesus was that first fruits from the grave to be resurrected and given a glorified body. And so we get to look to him. So when people ask, like, what's death going to be like? Look to Jesus. He's the first fruits. What's our bodies going to be like in heaven when all this is done? Look to Jesus. He's that example for us in every aspect of the word. And so if he's in this glorified physical body that decays no more, what do you think we're going to end up in? In a glorified physical body that will decay no more, right? And so Jesus, this firstborn, and the ruler of the kings on earth, and to him who loves us. We can never separate when we talk about who God is, who Jesus is, what he's done for us. We can never separate that. It's him who loves you. And I understand that there's times and there's days, there's seasons in our lives that we do not feel the love of God. We don't wake up and it's just like, he loves me. There's more petals on that uh, rose or whatever flower it is when we say he loves me not. And we look at our brokenness, we look at the ways that we mess up and we think there's more he loves me not than God looking at us saying he loves me. But thank the Lord that our faith does, or our, our feelings do not drive our faith. But the truth of who God is and his word, that's what drives our faith. Is there going to be some days that you don't feel it? Absolutely. Whoever bewitch you to think, oh, yeah, just give your life to the Lord, and you're just always going to be sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and flowers, they were lying to you. Life is hard, but it's really bad without Jesus. There's going to be some days that you're not going to feel the love of God. But put your faith in the fact that he does love you. And we don't have to look any further than the cross to understand and to know that. And I love how it says that he loves you. That's current. Yeah, but you know what I did last week, Pastor? You're like, you don't understand what I, like I, I fell back into some old ways. He loves you. You don't understand. He loves you understand the love of God. It is a continual action that is happening. It never ceases. He loves us. And then the past tense, he freed us. So because of our faith in Jesus, we're freed from our sins by his blood. 
Just like I think of Paul in the early book of Acts when he's in jail and the, and the door gets blown open, the chains fall, he's freed. Some of us are still in that jail cell of whatever sin is trying to control our lives, and we don't understand that God loves us, and he's freed, past tense. You're just comfortable in that cell, and you don't want to walk in that freedom that Jesus has given you. You look at your surroundings right now and think, oh, I'm never going to be freed from this pornography. I'm never going to be freed from this alcohol. I'm never going to be freed from this. This relationship is never going to have restoration in it. Walk in the freedom that God has given you. Too many of us are like Lazarus, except we just want to stay in the tomb and keep our grave clothes on because we don't think we deserve God's love or the freedom or we don't understand it. Walk in this freedom that he has given us. And, and then he made us. He made us a kingdom and priest to his God. Like, I love those kind of words. Because, again, this kingdom, this priest mentality, it takes us all the way back to the Old Testament. right? Because if we're going to be centered on Christ in our study of Revelation, we need to be clear about him. He loves us. He's freed us. And what has he made us? Again, if we're going to be centered on Christ, we need to be clear about him. A leadership principle that uh, really convicts me is to, to be unclear is unkind. Even in my parenting, to be unclear is unkind. And so we need to be clear about Jesus. And so he goes all the way back. We need to understand what he has made us into. And so it goes all the way back to Exodus 19, the chapter right before we get the Ten Commandments. God is looking at Moses, and in verses 5 and 6, he calls Israel a treasured possession. That he looked at Israel, and this was his personal treasure. He says, you're a kingdom of priests. Now, the difference between a prophet and a priest, a prophet spoke on behalf of God to humanity. But a priest, a priest represented humanity to God, right? And that's, that's key. He doesn't call us a kingdom of prophets, and a lot of times we want to be that. We want to be the voice of the Lord, condemning and judging everybody around us that doesn't live how we do, and we just want to give them a good word of the Lord. We're not called to be a kingdom of prophets. We're called to be a kingdom of priests, meaning we identify with humanity and represent humanity to God. So we're a kingdom of priests and bringing people to the Lord, and it says we're a holy nation. And even that word nation in the Hebrew in Exodus is goy meaning it's a Gentiled mixed nation. And that's the part that Israel lost. They thought they were special and they kept all the other nations around at bay. And sometimes we take that even in the church mentality. We're the church, we're God's, you know, his bride and everybody else needs to stay away. No, no, no. They were always to be missional. Even Israel and today the church is to be missional. And so Peter takes this same verse in 1 Peter 2, 9. He says, you're a chosen race. Looking at the church, the body of Christ, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. When's the last time you woke up, you looked in the mirror and be like, all right, Nick, you're a royal priesthood. Yeah, we, we probably don't use that kind of language, but understand what he made us. He made us a kingdom and priest. So we're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a people of his own possession. Right? I have very few little possessions, right? My kids are already fighting about what they're going to get when I croak, right? And my son's like, I want your guitar and your Bible. And I'm like, in that order? You know, like, <laughs> you don't want the Bible verse, then maybe the guitar? He's like, I said what I said, okay, Dad? Said what I said. I don't have many possessions, but they're mine. It's like, I remember buying this guitar when I was in high school, and like, 
and, and there's value in that. We have possessions like that. Maybe you have a stamp collection, weirdo, or a rock collection or something like that, you know, and that's your possession. You find value in it. You try to show your friends, and they're just like, loser, nerd alert, you know. But the Lord looks at us. Understand what he's saying? He's like, you, as believers in Jesus, you're my treasured possession. He finds value. He finds hope and fulfillment. Like, like this is my, look at them. I love these guys. We're his treasured possession. And so, so understanding who we are, even at the beginning of this revelation, he made us a kingdom and priest so that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We can never forget the mission that God has for us to be a kingdom and a priest, this royal priesthood. What's our role then? What better people to go to those who need the grace and the love of God than those who have experienced the love and the grace of God? You know, it's not a class that we took in seminary. It's not a, oh, yeah, my pastor did a sermon series. No, we can look at lost, broken people separated from Jesus and say, I've been there. I know what you're going through. I lived life without hope. I lived life thinking that I was unlovable. I lived life in my own abilities and strengths, and I only ended up in more brokenness. What better people to reach those that are in need of grace than those that have experienced grace? So for us as a kingdom of priests, proclaiming the excellencies, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ that it's always been God's design that we get to represent Christ to the world. And it says that God is making his appeal to those that are separated from him through us. Are we representing Christ well? Are we good ambassadors? And so when you hear that kind of kingdom language, this royal priesthood, these ambassadors, it's kingdom dominion kind of language. But if you go to verse 7, he says, but behold, like beware, understand, he is coming with the clouds. And so we wake up every morning, we look out, and if it's clear skies, the Lord's not coming today. No, there's a little bit more meaning to it. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel, if you would. Go to Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 13. This is where we're going to start. And so a lot of times when you hear Jesus in the New Testament, he calls himself the Son of Man. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. You hear that's, a, that's his most uh, common title that he gives of himself, the Son of Man. Well, he gets it from Daniel chapter 7. But listen to what it says here. Daniel 7 verse 13. This is Daniel getting a night vision. Uh, and he says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. So, so we have the Son of Man coming up to God the Father and was presented before him and to him was given. So the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom. We understand the fullness now that that kingdom is not about land and boundaries. That kingdom is people. That we are that kingdom that has been given unto the Lord. That we are that nation. And so that all people's nations, languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so this is kingdom kind of language. And so the coming on the clouds in the Old Testament, that was kind of a, a symbol or a, uh, an analogy of coming judgments. 
So yes, he loves us and he has freed us and he has made us a kingdom and priest. But understand, he is coming with judgments. See, a lot of times we read the Old Testament, oh, this is the God of vengeance and judgment, but we love the God of the New Testament. He's about freedom and mercy. It's the same God that we serve. And so he is coming on the clouds. He is bringing judgment. He is that righteous judge that we were talking about right there. A bulk of the book is going to talk about Jesus as that righteous judge on the earth. And that's one of the things I love about the book of Revelation. I think it an answers one of the biggest questions that people struggle in their faith about, the problem of evil. If God is all-knowing and God is all-powerful, God is all-loving, then why does evil exist in our world? There's an uh, astrophysicist that I watch on YouTube because I'm a geek like that, right? Like, he dumbs it down, so don't think like, oh, wow, my pastor listens to an astrophysicist. No, no, I, I, he dumbs it down for me. And he's talking, and he got on the topic of faith, and he got on the topic of God. And he said, if, if God really exists, and he's not a believer by any meaning of the word, strong atheist, he goes, if, if a God did exist, he, he would be all-powerful, he'd be all-knowing, and, and he would be all-loving. But evil exists. And so his argument says, if there is a, a God that's all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, if he's all-powerful, he can get rid of evil. If he's all-knowing, he would know how to get rid of evil. And if he's all-loving, he would want to get rid of evil, except evil still exists. Therefore, that being does not exist. And that's why he does not believe in a higher power. And he just holds to his science. And a lot of people walk away because of the problem of evil. And it's not just in, you know, the intellectual concept of evil. It's usually what happens when you lose a loved one a spouse or a child, or you lose possessions, you lose your house. It's usually in, the, in when evil personally comes knocking on our doors and we are affected by that. And we, and we have that audacity to shake our fist at God and say, if you are so loving, then why did you allow this evil to happen in my life? Because we had a misunderstanding of who God is, that he does permit evil in our world. And so when people ask, like, why, why is there such evil? Why doesn't God do anything about it? The key word that you need to insert in their argument is yet. Just because God hasn't done anything with evil doesn't mean he won't. He just hasn't yet. And Revelation gives us the answer of, of how he will do that. Because we know every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We talked about it in Jude. Nobody's going to get away with murder. Nobody's going to be standing before the Lord and be like, he doesn't know. He doesn't even know. Like, he doesn't even know this is awesome. Like, just kind of go with the crowd. Just go with the crowd. Don't make eye contact. Low. Nobody's going to get away with it. God is going to be that righteous judge before all evil. And you're thinking, well, what's taking them so long? Why don't we hurry this train up a little bit? Anybody got any lost friends and family that's not walking with the Lord? Don't presume upon the patience of the Lord because what if he would have started this whole process the day before you came to the Lord? Oh, sorry, you missed it. Should have been a day earlier. Missed the sale. We were just giving salvation away. No. God's patience. He is, he is patiently enduring the evil that is going on in the world. Why? Because at the same time, people are coming to a saving relationship with him. Why? Because we as the body of Christ understand that we are made as this kingdom and these priests to God that we are bringing people into a saving relationship with him. 
We're that one sinner telling another sinner where we find him who is sinless. And even though they can't do anything for their sin and you can't do anything for their sin, we can take them to the one who paid for it all. And so God is patiently enduring the evil in this world. Because again, your heart for justice is not greater than the Lord's. He has a stronger heart for justice than you do. So why is God waiting? Because salvation is still available. And the only thing that we're waiting on for these events to start, because you hear these words in here, these things that must soon take place, the original meaning is actually suddenly. Not that like, hey, we're on a, we're on a time, you better hurry it up, Lord, these are soon. No, it just means that these things are going to take place suddenly. It's a better word to put it. And so the only thing that we're waiting until these things suddenly start is the fullness of the Gentiles. That eventually there's going to be one person that's going to give their life to the Lord and say, all right, that's the fullness. And now these things will suddenly start. Can you imagine if that person's like 72? Be like, you could have hurried this up along if you would have accepted the Lord when you were like 40, buddy. Right? Or you might be here this morning. You might be that fullness of the Gentiles. And we're all just waiting on you. And the Lord is waiting. And patiently enduring the evil in this world. Why? Because he is still calling people into a saving relationship with him. But it answers the question, why doesn't God do something about all the evil in the world? Stay with us. He will. Why? Because there's no middle ground with Jesus. He is the Alpha and the Omega, verse 8. And those are the first and the last Greek letters of the Greek alphabet, right? It's like us saying Jesus is the A to the Z. He's everything. And a lot of times we love to talk about Jesus as the beginning. You know, he is a God of new things. New creation in Genesis, we love that. The church doing something new, even in our own personal lives. We love that new things that God is doing. Even us as believers, we are new creation in Christ. We love those new things. But a lot of times we neglect that he's also the omega. That God is bringing an end to things. And this is all for his glory and for his purpose. And he is going to bring an end to sin. That nobody's going to escape that. That he is going to shore this up. And we're going to be back in that same garden-like but now city with a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. That this is not just the alpha but also the omega. He is the beginning and the end of all things. He is the almighty. He is sovereign. He is in absolute control. We look at the world sometimes and we say things like, oh, the world is just falling apart. Now the world's falling into place. There's nothing that's happening in the world that the Lord's like, I wasn't expecting that. Like code red, we got something outside of my will and sovereign control. Not at all. Everything is falling into place for his purpose and for his will. He's absolutely sovereign. He's the alpha and the omega. And if you need one more small little geek out, when you take Yahweh from the Old Testament, you translate it into the Greek, he's the alpha and the omega. Because what's that same verbiage that he used to describe it? Who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Just another, as we're starting the book of Revelation, defending that Jesus is absolutely God, and he is sovereign, and he is in absolute control, that all things were created by him and for him, even to the end. What's he say? He'll be with us until the end of this age. He is with us. And so Jesus, this sovereign king of kings, this Lord of lords, he will bring an end to sin and into evil. But what we can't do as the body of Christ is hunker down and just wait. Because then we're not being the body of Christ. 
understand that we are this kingdom of priests. We are this treasured possession, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, a people of his own possession, that we proclaim the excellencies. We proclaim the gospel. We get to show how he brought us out of darkness into marvelous light, and we get to be ambassadors. We get to make God's appeal through us to those that are separated and apart from him. And so if you want to collect ammo and water, you can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't put your hope in that. Put your hope in Christ and understand the role and the responsibility for us that whenever the Lord is ready to suddenly start this turntable of events, I pray that he would find us as the body of Christ doing the last thing that he had called us to do, and that is to be a kingdom of priests, proclaiming his excellencies, being the hands and the feet and the heart of Jesus in our broken world around us. The moment we cease in that, think, because it, 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 it's not a video game. These are real people that are living in brokenness, and he is giving us the opportunity to come alongside and share the greatest news. And not just intellectually, but we, we get front row seats to see transformation happen in people's lives. That when we hear them sing, amazing grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found, we'll remember that. There's people that remember lost Nick. And then they get to see found Nick. And it's a testimony to his goodness that he, sometimes I think is even for us, I want you to witness and to see that. But we cannot neglect the heart that God has given us to be the church until these events suddenly take place. Now, are we in the end times? Absolutely. The moment Jesus ascended back to heaven and said, I'm coming soon, but go and make disciples. Teach, baptize, and understand I am with you. Why? Because he loves us, he has freed us, and he's made us into this kingdom. So I think it's time for us not to be looking at events in the world of where does this line up with the Bible. We need to be looking at the person of Jesus, understanding our role as the body of Christ, and being the real hands and the feet of Jesus in the world. Father, we love you. We trust you. And we just thank you for an opportunity as we start this new series that you would just pour out yourself, that you would reveal yourself, that you would unveil yourself in a, in a deeper way to each and every one of us and then even us as a church, Lord. And where are you calling us to be that kingdom, those priests, those ambassadors for you, Lord, that you want to make your appeal through us, I pray that we would surrender and submit our lives and we would allow you to work in and through us. And as we continue our study, I pray there would be unity in the body, that we'd continue to let your word lead and guide, and then you would find us faithful to the responsibility and the high calling that you have upon our lives. Give us that kind of faith, Lord. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen.